Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. A question that is sometimes asked about classical education is, is it elitist? Uniforms, a challenging curriculum, and a culture that affirms truth, goodness, and beauty look to some on the outside that we're simply putting on airs, trying to look better than everyone else. In a world of celebrated mediocrity, we do value excellence and high standards, but we also value humility and gratitude, the antidotes of taking ourselves and our education too seriously. Join us for this episode as we look behind the curtain and discover how and why classical Christian education is not elitist. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens, your host here. You've made a great decision. You could have listened to any other podcast or done anything else, but right now we're together on this journey, and I am so grateful. I know many of you right now are busy zipping through life with a lot of things going on, and that's what makes podcasting so great. It is an amazing medium. It's growing like crazy. We have been at this now for seven years and continuing to lean in. I'm doing a lot of work these days behind the scenes, more than I ever have, honestly, uh, putting time and effort into building the podcast. There's more coming. There's a lot of enthusiasm for just gathering as we do each week and talk about the challenges and opportunities of raising the next generation. Some of you are wearing your parent hat. Some of you are school administrators or teachers. Some of you wear all those hats. But along the way, there is a lot of momentum right now happening around the world, whether it's schools coming together for the first time starting up, parents saying, let's do something different. Let's be a little countercultural. Let's raise a generation that really loves what's true, good, and beautiful. And I love being a part of that conversation and encouraging you in any way. I'm doing more speaking and training and consulting and connecting with many of you than I ever have around the country. It's been so much fun, and I'm thankful that we can be on this journey together. If you are on uh, any of these uh, different podcast apps, a lot of you listen on Apple app, you can go in there and give us a five-star review. That really helps just continue to get the word out. It is helpful when you tell friends and fellow parents about the podcast. And so we're here and we want to be on the journey together. Info at Basecamp Live is an email address. You can take a moment, if you will, and just let me know where you're listening from. Love to give shout outs back to folks who are listening and let me know what is on your mind. We're always grateful for each episode for organizations that believe in what we're doing and this classical Christian school movement, America's Christian Credit Union, Classic Learning Test, Gutenberg College, and Wilson Hill Academy. I want to say thank you in particular for your sponsoring of this episode of Basecamp Live. In this episode, I have the privilege of sitting down with Megan Atherton. She is the program director and founder of Common Sense Classical, a blog designed to help people understand classical education. She's really a kindred spirit with what we're doing in her efforts, trying to help make classical education understandable and enhance partnerships between schools and homes. Megan is a graduate of Hillsdale College and the student affairs coordinator at a K-12 classical school in Golden, Colorado. She has worked with thousands of prospective families and students. She's heard all the questions and she always likes to say that she lives for the moment when a light bulb goes off in a parent's brain and they say, wait, why didn't, why didn't you go to a classical Christian school earlier? And she says, I've been asking myself this same thing for years. We're all discovering it and all excited about the impact that it can have on our families and on our culture. 
So her article on this topic we're discussing today on classical education and elitism was published by the Searcy Institute. There's a link to it in the show notes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Megan. Megan, welcome to Basecamp Live. So glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your journey into classical education. Yeah, um, I've been in classical education in kind of some capacity uh, for most of my life. I was in a classically influenced, as I think what they would call themselves, school for um, high school and for middle school. Uh, went to a liberal arts college, um, Hillsdale College out in Michigan. Um, so I've just kind of been in the universe for a long time. Uh, when I graduated from Hillsdale, I came out to Denver, um, worked in a, a one other spot before I got back into classical ed at Golden View Classical Academy, uh, where I work with enrollment and prospective families. Uh, my husband's a teacher at the same classical school. Um, so it's kind of all around us, <laughs> but I, uh, I recently also, um, uh, the last couple of years have been in the, uh, university of Dallas, uh, master's program for classical education. Wow. Wow. You are, you're part of this new generation that, um, of folks that actually experience classical education as a part of your own educational journey, which is so exciting uh, for so many of us that were kind of uh, transplants into this world and still figuring it out. Um, you've come right through it. Well, I want to jump in. There's a topic that um, obviously folks are listening because it was in the title of this idea of questioning. The question is, you know, are classical Christian schools um, elitist. I, you know, I don't think they are, but I think it's a very real concern and it's a very, you know, there are points at which that can happen. Give us a sense of, um, of your perspective on that. Uh, I know you wrote this article for Cersei Institute that's how I found you. And I, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this. I actually was just speaking at a school, um, in Seattle and, and had a parent come up to me and just, that was actually the question they wanted to know about, like, what was my perspective on it? So where, where does this question come from, from your vantage point? What are you seeing? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I get the question or the charge, if you will, of elitism, um, from a couple different areas. I work with prospective families all the time. Um, so there's, you know, generally a question of whether or not, um, classical education is for their child. Um, so, you know, you kind of have that from the perspective family side of things, but there's also other schools or other educational models that make the same charge that classical education is elitist. Um, so I think the, the kind of the false charges of elitism that I tend to see are things like, um, well, you wear a uniform. Um, so that makes the education inaccessible, um, or the culture of the school inaccessible. Um, you have a challenging curriculum that you admit is difficult. Um, within that curriculum, you praise and uh, teach Western civilization um, and have an emphasis on the Western canon, um, potentially to the exclusion of some other uh, canon or some other cultures. And um, so I, those, I don't think, are signs of elitism. Um, I think it's okay to have standards within education. I think it's okay to believe that something is better than something else. Um, I do see real instances of elitism within classical education. And that usually comes from like educators or administrators who are taking themselves too seriously, as opposed to taking their mission very, very seriously. Um, I see it when teachers or admin will say things like, well, classical education is the best and there's just nothing that's nothing that's as good or nothing that's good at all. <laughs> and they, yeah. they tend to put classical ed up on a huge, huge pedestal. And obviously like I, I love classical education, but I, I would not go so far as to say that there is no good alternative 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Or they'll what? say that. Well, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, because I think there's a lot, we're covering a lot of ground with this and it's good just to kind of lay on the table, you know, both where this can, you know, what, what's, what's the nature of the concern and, and, you know, it is interesting in different parts of the country. I've been in, you know, when I was in Atlanta and very competitive, uh, you know, quote Christian <laughs> with quotes around it, you know, prep school world, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of families that would claim to be Christian would say, we want a little bit of elitism. We want something that's sort of set apart and higher quality and better. And then you go to other parts of the country and it's immediately of concern. So, you know, it's very interesting how even what this idea of something being better than something else, and we'll, we'll, we're going to unpack this in a second, because I mean, that's very much what classical education says is that we actually do need to discern these things, but there's a way mm-hmm. to do that where you can cross a line into <laughs> truly being um, judgmental and elitist, and that's a problem, but it, it's complicated. But keep going, because these are really interesting. So the uniforms can kind of trigger that, a sense of unique educational philosophy. What else is sort of you hearing? Yeah, um, from families in particular, um, families who come and visit the school, um, they'll see the, a, a very orderly environment. Um, they'll see uh, homework on a nightly basis or a lack of technology. And usually I'll just I'll hear the phrase like, well, that's just not for every kid. Um, and I'm a, I am a huge proponent that classical education is for every kid. Every family um, who is on board with the mission can find success at a classical school. So it always breaks my heart <laughs> when, families, when families say that. And I think it comes from um, just a sense that there's a part of it that's foreign or inaccessible to them, whether that's, um, like you said, like the uniforms or even classical decor, um, like a lot of hardwoods, um, not a lot of acronyms or bright, bright, bright neon colors all over the walls. Um, so I think that sometimes it's, 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 it's an environment often at schools that it is, it's set apart. Um, the teachers dress more professionally, um, at, or at least as professional, hopefully as the students <laughs> who are in the uniforms. Um, and so I think that it can, it can be a little bit disconcerting to families to try to picture their student who's coming from a vastly different educational background, maybe never has taken notes before on any sort of formal basis, has never um, had to sit for 20 minutes at a time to listen to a lesson. So I think that that can be really disconcerting um, to some families. So that's, that's really why I wrote the article was to just to share that we have, you know, classical education is proud of what it's doing and what it's done, um, but that doesn't make it inaccessible to people and a, a difficult or challenging curriculum doesn't mean that every child can't access it. Um, yeah, and so that's, you, that's kind of where I came from with it. And I wonder too, cause it, it seemed to me in the last, I don't know, five years, that question, I don't remember hearing it that often. I used to, um, occasionally give tours, um, at, well, both the schools I was at, we, I would, you know, it's always great to kind of get on the front lines and hear the questions of prospective families. And that increase, it was increasingly becoming a question of concern, I think, especially from kind of the millennial Gen Z families that were coming in. And it's an interesting kind of, we're, you know, we talk on the podcast a lot about kind of the cultural moment and what we're experiencing. But, you know, that's sort of the, if you will, kind of the, the, the modern narrative, which is, you know, equality. And we don't want, you know, it's the whole, it honestly, kind of, bleeds in a bit from just the general cultural narrative of we don't want anybody to be better than anybody else. We, you know, it's the oppressors and the victims and everything needs to kind of be the same. And even though we know from a classical and Christian perspective that we do need to discern, I think it bleeds in maybe just to say it that way. So then there's this concern that, well, if you do have 
uniforms, are you doing that because you're better than someone else or are you saying that someone else is not, um, you know, not as good as you? And so it's an interesting, how, how do you sort that out? Because we're kind of, it's kind of like we're in the world, but we're not of it. We're kind of called to be discerning and to say that is beautiful and I'm sorry, but that is not. And therefore you're going to be accused probably of being an elitist if you don't accept everything as the world would expect. Yeah, um, just to, to make sure I'm understanding your question, you're asking more broadly how to mm-hmm. handle that charge versus. I mean, do you, um, yeah, do you see that as sort of a. Maybe, yeah, well, no, not uniform. I'm just saying, I th- I'm wondering why, as we kind of set up what the problem is, I mean, it, it seems like the cultural moment we're in is even adding to the concern of, of accusations of elitism because of this, again, just general assumption in the culture that all good things have to be equal and nobody should be better than anybody else. So, and, and probably even a little bit of a celebration of kind of what's broken and, you know, kind of the, uh, I always laugh, you know, <laughs> you know, people spend all this money on jeans that look like they drug them behind their car because they're all torn. It's like, like everything should look kind of beat up and worn. And like you walk in a classical school and it looks very refined and like we're trying to put on airs. So it seems very opposite the direction the culture is headed just from a perception standpoint. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, I think I mentioned, you know, that the charge of elitism or like actual instances of elitism often come from people within the classical world taking themselves too seriously, uh, teachers who make lessons, uh, about their performance rather than about student learning or feeling the need to alter lessons down because Shakespeare just, quote, isn't for everyone. Um, mm. Things like that. Those are like the real charges that I hear, but you you put it in the context of all the hardwoods and it, you know, it all, it all blends in and, and it kind of right. makes sense. But um, I, don't, I don't think it's bad to have something set apart. When you walk into a classical school and you, you have people taking their education very seriously, taking their mission very seriously. You know, I, we, I joked about the uniform question specifically, but we wear a uniform because we're doing serious work and that calls for serious attire. There's also all these other benefits, like you don't have to worry about having the right brand names uh, socially as a student when you have a uniform. Mm-hmm. And uh, seventh grade parents tend to love the uniform the most because that's right around when that tyranny <laughs> of fashion sets in. So, you know, there's yeah. those practical reasons too. But I wear a blazer to my job, even though I work in the front office and I'm an administrator, because I take my job seriously and because I set it apart as a place of serious work. Um, so I address the part for that, yeah. but that doesn't mean we take ourselves <laughs> so seriously that we can't, right. you know, have joy in what we're doing that we can't recognize that we need to reach students of a lot of different abilities and a lot of right. different backgrounds and yeah. we have to do right. that well. Um, right. and my husband loves to use the example of pony day at golden view as like the most like anti elitist thing we bring in. <laughs> miniature ponies for no other reason other than they're they're, like they're super cute and fun and the kids love it and we spend an afternoon letting the kids have the ponies and it's just it's a weird like connection in my brain of this thing where we're we don't take ourselves so seriously that we can't have joy and experience like things outside of just the classroom in this ultra classical decor business Um, but we take it seriously and we take our mission seriously and so we we act and dress and behave accordingly. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, we have such a world of, I kind of call it, I guess it's the Disney effect where there's lots of sort of facades that are put up in that kind of a Disney world. And it's 
like everybody knows that that's not really, those aren't really pirates or those animals aren't real, or that's not really, you know, some turn of the century setting that they've put up. It's just a movie set looking thing. And I think, so the world, I think we're just suspicious of things that, that look maybe too good to be true. And yet we're called into a world of, of excellence and truth and goodness and beauty. And so we surround ourselves with these things. So I can understand where if you're not familiar with it, and I do think you're right, there is a risk of some schools maybe allowing kind of the, maybe more the Harry Potter thing, if whatever you want to, I'm trying to, I'm grasping for a good cultural reference point, but you know, I, I, I know our school in Ambrose, sometimes our school Ambrose in Boise is a beautiful English Tudor building. And people would think this is just simply put here to kind of you know, look impressive, like you're trying to be Harry Potter. I'm like, no, you don't understand. There's so much more to this education than just a facade of, you know, it's like going to Olive Garden and thinking you're having an experience of Italy. I mean, that's not the point. It's really a lot deeper than that. So. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, like I said, I, I don't want to, I love classical education. I also think it's important to recognize like where work needs to be done. So I, I do think like in a lot of ways, some classical schools don't do themselves a lot of favors um, with their marketing, with the way that they approach prospective families on these questions, or even in their approach in the classroom where um, you have teachers who, like I said kind of before, it's more about their ability to be seen as um, brilliant and less about the student learning, um, or it's about... um, their belief that they are immune to like that as a school, they are immune to the, some of the challenges that local schools around them are immune to. And I, I tell families all the time, we encounter all the same stuff <laughs> that other schools do. We might encounter it on a much smaller scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, encounter, we, we have to deal with behavior problems and we have to deal with kids not doing their homework. And we have to deal with parents who overstep or understep and are, you know, there's yeah. lots of things that schools have to deal with and we deal with all of that too. Yeah. We're not, we're not, I mean, yes, we are still real humans in here running the school. And so why don't we take, I want to take a break and we come back. I want to get into some of those suggestions and practical things that you do both as a school to kind of counter that concern and even things we could be doing in our home. Certainly like what's the role of humility? You know, how do we teach students to be critical thinkers, but not turn out as judgmental people. I mean, there's, there's a lot of nuancing that I think we have to be intentional about. So we are in fact, not elitist. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back and continue our conversation. Sounds great. I want to take just a moment during our break and let you know about the great work that's being done by Wilson Hill Academy. They offer a vibrant, rich and accredited classical Christian education available to families and schools almost anywhere. With a click of a button, students join master teachers and friends live online from all over the world to engage in deep and lively discussions, solve math problems, conduct science experiments, translate Latin, deliver thesis presentations, and so much more. At Wilson Hill, students make lifelong friends and graduate well-prepared for college and beyond. Discover what's possible for your family or school at wilsonhillacademy.com. This episode of Basecamp Live is sponsored by the Heritage Program at Gordon College, a nationally ranked Christian liberal arts college located just north of Boston. We were made to flourish, but what does that look like? The Heritage Program invites your students to explore this question. Heritage is a one-week summer program for high schoolers to experience life in Christian community. 
They will see the good life in practice as they live on campus, learn from professors, reflect on great text, cultivate deep friendships through discussion and creativity, and explore Boston and the North Shore. To learn more about this unique summer opportunity, visit gordon.edu forward slash heritage. So Megan, we live in a world again that that insists on equality and nothing is better than anything else. And yet here we are as classical schools who kind of going in the opposite direction. We do believe that things are true and good and beautiful, which means there's things that are false and not so beautiful and not so good. And and that's a very fine line, especially with children, because it's very easy for that to become a, a point of pride or arrogance. So how do we how do we create students that are critical thinkers and able to discern, but not a, you know, judgmental and prideful and actually elitist. Yeah. I think when I think about, I think I agree exactly with what you just said. When I think about that word judgmental, I think it's important to consider, you know, what we mean by that. Does it mean we can't make a judgment? We can't pass a judgment because we believe that we're right um, or believe that something else is wrong. And I don't think that that's the mistake. You know, I think you're right. Classical schools inherently teach that some things are good, like courage. Courage is good. We, we teach that some things are inherently bad, like cowardice. Um, and so though like passing a judgment on a situation, I think is important and a big part of a classical education. Um, but I also think that a classical classroom really positions itself well to be a practice ground for how to pass judgment without behaving judgmentally or allowing it to impact our view of a whole other person, like outside of being you know, an irredeemable view of a person, allowing that judgment to impact us to that degree. You know, classical education bases itself so much on discussion in the classroom. Um, and I think that history is a really good example there. Um, it's, it's all fine and good to talk about the Reformation in a history class, um, right up until you re- look around and you realize that a third of the room is Catholic and two thirds of the room is something else. And a teacher may or may not know who in the classroom, at least in a public school, um, in a public setting uh, for public charter schools, you might have students who believe vastly different things about the nature of the Reformation. Um, And so having those conversations in an environment that demands respect and demands proper treatment of other opinions and being genuinely open to learning something new about somebody that maybe you didn't think you had anything in common with, Classical education is like a natural spot for that. Um, They talk about so many different things um, in the context of history, literature, science, even um, the place and role of mathematics. Those things come up in classical schools every day. And it's a great practice ground for students to be able to hone those critical thinking skills without it turning them into people who just lord um, their opinion over other people. Well, and, and, you know, just to footnote that, I mean, even in, in a classical Christian covenant school, you have denominational differences, you have socioeconomic differences, I mean, you have learning differences, you have, I mean, there's there's any, you know, welcome to being a fallen human, there's all these, anything that doesn't seem like what your world is, it's very easy to be insensitive and judgmental um, in a way that's not helpful. Um, so, I yeah, I think this is a really important point of differentiation. And again, very counter to what the sort of the world tells us today, which you can't even make any critique of anything being different. So talk more about what that looks like in, you know, within the context of the classroom, because you're right, I think it's a perfect proving ground to figure out how do we work this out in a way that's, that's balanced and, and right. Yeah. Um, do you mean like talk about specifically how that conversation takes shape or 
Yeah, I mean, just make sure so I understand yeah, your I mean, question. Yeah, I mean, within the context of a classroom, you know, the ideas of sort of you know humility or. Um, I mean, can you think of instances when you're in a classroom setting and you've actually seen, you're talking about the Reformation before, I mean, sort of where, I mean, how do you navigate through that? What Maybe unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I think um, navigating that, I think, you know, it's it's exciting or it should be treated as exciting to have different opinions and different views in a classroom. Um, it's It's a place where everybody is looking to learn and to understand and to grow. And so it's also like a good reflection of the world around you in the sense that you can't control that other people are going to disagree with you, but we can control the way that we respond to them. Um, I think that having teachers, A, who come from themselves a place of humility um, in, a, in approaching knowledge and approaching their own understanding, but also really working in the classroom to create an environment where you can just throw out an idea. Let's just throw out an idea and see what happens. Um, and talk through that and navigate that together, take it to its ends and then rope it back in, um, calling out disrespect when they see it, um, calling out students treating each other poorly or not taking into consideration something that they maybe didn't see before or asking them, even as a teacher, if there's no differing views in the classroom, maybe the teacher can be the devil's advocate. Um, there's a history teacher here at Golden View who prides himself on the fact that none of his, none of his pupils seem to know that he's Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he loves being the devil's advocate and really pushing his students to not just have what they believe, but really shape the rhetoric around what they believe. Um, mm. You know, your opinion is only as good as your ability to explain it. Um, yeah. That's kind of an approach that he takes in the classroom. And it's really cool to watch. Um, there's a ton of student learning happening in the classroom yeah. when, when you watch him teach. It's really neat. Well, and what I hear you saying, I mean, you know, we often talk about obviously the cultural moment again that we're in where every there's a tendency for people to cancel each other and for critical thinking to not even occur. Um, this is really, again, the proving ground in our classrooms. And it's obviously more of kind of a middle high school level when you're kind of in that logic rhetoric stage, but you're really starting to create environments where there are real points of disagreement. And then how do you actually graciously and lovingly engage with one another to sort through that into, you know, the, the heart of a of Socratic discussion? I mean, I, I remember years ago, a student that transferred into our school that was a 11th grader, he'd been in the public school, and he just could not believe that really any topic was okay to talk about. There was sort of a, an assumption mm-hmm. that there were taboos or trigger words or things that you couldn't say that would, you know, you had to constantly filter what you were about to say. I mean, in a, not in terms of being coarse, but just in terms of topics in general in our world today. So I, I love the fact that we can engage hard issues and we can learn how to sit amongst differing opinions and not immediately feel like we need to, you know, give up or cancel or be superficial. I mean, I think that is the heart of classical education in terms of teaching us how to wrestle through hard ideas and and come out humble because of that. Yeah, well, and I even think of, you know, I I think a lot of classical schools most have core virtues of some kind or, um, uh, yeah, core virtues. That's what we call it. I think that it goes by a few different names at different schools too. But uh, I don't think it's uncommon for friendship to be selected among them. Um, and in the Aristotelian sense of friendship, we consider that not just being buddies, not just being friends with somebody, but truly showing friendship means wanting the best for that person. 
Um, and so you have to take that into conversation, um, peer to peer, uh, teacher to student, student yeah. to teacher. We, we want to create a culture and environment where we are demonstrating friendship in the sense that we want the best for that other person, even if we don't agree. And yeah. we want to, to show them that goodwill, um, in the midst of those kind of those hard conversations that, that people have, teachers have with each other, parents have with, uh, with yeah. administrators. And <laughs> we bring that, that, that friendship and that goodwill into those conversations. Yeah. Um, and I think when you understand friendship in that way, it can really help, um, to guide them. I think it's a great example. Yeah. I think that's a great way to think of his friendship and kind of, you know, the, the biblical idea of sort of iron sharpening iron. I mean, there's a, there's a point at which you have to really, you know, rub these, you know, these metals together in the case of iron and iron to, to refine them. And so it's a, pro, you know, there's friction, there, there can be difficulty, but that's what a friend does. You know, the friend speaks the truth and love. A friend really wants you to be a better person having worked through these things. And so that's done again, there's humility, humility that's part of that. Let me ask this question. You know, when we think about, you know, again, we, we, we challenge students to become the very best human that they can be in terms of their academic ability. And so again, as you talked about earlier, families will often tour our, our schools and say, gosh, you know, you guys are really asking a lot of these kids compared to the, you know, the street, the, maybe the school down the street. And we end up with students that actually do, you know, although we're not just pursuing college, we actually do really well in terms of college entries and higher test scores and all that. So shouldn't we help us, you know, what do you do with the question of, do we, we need to take, we should take pride in our hard work and our accomplishments, but we don't want to become prideful people, which again leads to elitism. So how do you help, you know, how do you guys discern that and help students and faculty and even parents think about the line between those two? Yeah, I think like, like you said, I, I think it would be wrong to say you shouldn't be proud of those things. <laughs> you know, like it's, that's actually to a certain degree, not just um, to the students to ask them to work that hard. Um, and teachers too, to ask them to put that much in and then, um, just say, well, it doesn't matter. Um, cause they, they do, they work hard and it's, and it's important. Um, so I like to talk about this with families in terms of, you know, how much, uh, time is it taking away and, and how many different ways are you honoring something and are you honoring something above it? Um, so a really like easy example that I talk about with families all the time, it's actually one of my tips to families who go and visit other schools is pay attention to what's on their walls. Hmm. When you walk around the hallways, do you see, um, a big thermometer with scholarship dollars raised on it? Uh, do you see academic achievements exclusively on the walls in terms of competitions or, um, you know, you know, rankings in the school? Do you see big campaigns for study sessions so that they can achieve a certain level? Um, number of IVs, you know, things like that. Those aren't inherently bad things. They're not bad things to talk about. There's a little, we have it in a subsection of our tour packet where we talk about those things. But when we think about what we want students to look at every day and to internalize as they're walking around the hallways, that's not it. Um, so our hallways at Golden View, just as an example, um, are filled with beautiful artwork uh, and awards related to character, um, the highest awards in the school. Uh, the other side of that is, you know, how much time are you spending recognizing these things? So Golden View has a valedictorian and a salutatorian. 
We just announced them a couple weeks ago, actually. Both fabulous. Um, very proud of them and all of their hard work. They were separated by seven one thousandths of a, of a decimal point, <laughs> which is just oh insane. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, they worked incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, and they were very, very close. Um, we honor them in our assembly. We have them stand to be recognized and give them a certificate. But at graduation, at the end of the year, it's not the valedictorian or salutatorian who addresses their class. It's somebody called the outstanding graduate who embodies what we believe to be the ideal sentinel. And there's an entire, which is our mascot, uh, there's an entire process of selection for that. It is considered the highest award in the school. Um, similarly, we have honor roll. We have honor roll, high honor roll, and perfect GPA. Those students get to stand during the um, assembly to be recognized for their hard work, and they get a certificate. But by comparison, our student of the quarter, who is um, uh, nominated based on character by their teachers, receives a very, very fancy journal and a $100 gift card. So when we talk about the the levels of, I mean, not that you should do everything for a prize, that's like, there's like a backwards argument there somewhere. <laughs> but mm -hmm. when we think about how much time we're spending on things, you know, we're talking about maybe 10 minutes of an hour long assembly, the rest of which is dedicated to character recognition. Um, yeah. And, and, and then what they internalize when they're walking around in the hallways. So those are two kind of like tangible things that we do and the way that we talk about it, I think, um, is really important yeah. in classrooms too. I think it's the old adage, you know, what gets celebrated gets valued. So if everything is about, you know, whatever, you know, the <laughs> grades or whatever it may be, um, that, that sets a tone that's very different. Well, we're going to take another break and I want to come back and, and you had mentioned earlier, I think a, a point I'd like to come back to, which is the concern when parents, maybe perspectives are viewing a school and they're thinking, it might be elitist or that's their concern. Then the question comes, you know, is this school for everyone? Or is this somehow an education just for an elite or just for my really smart, my smartest child? And I wonder, you know, I, I don't think anybody wants to enter in an environment where there's going to be shame or feelings of failure or that sense of I'll never, it, this is a school where my child will never be good enough. And those are real pressures, real questions. So I'm curious kind of your thoughts on that as we, uh, as we address this really, I think very relevant question that we hear often today. So we'll be right back and continue the conversation. You choose a traditional education for a reason. So why use standardized tests that don't reflect that? Basecamp Live is proud to partner with Classic Learning Test, which offers online academic assessments that strengthen a traditional education. CLT's assessments for grades three through 12 provide a meaningful metric of students' abilities, equipping parents and educators, and helping students pursue a fulfilling future. Explore CLT's assessments by visiting www.cltexam.com forward slash Basecamp. As schools and families, we engage with businesses every day, and unfortunately, many of them are increasingly embracing more progressive ideologies and practices. That's why Basecamp Live, we're proud to partner with America's Christian Credit Union, a banking institution that only serves and invests in kingdom causes. So whether you're managing a school, a home, a small business, ACCU can meet your banking needs while upholding biblical values. Find out why tens of thousands of families and ministries across the country, including Basecamp Live, have chosen to bank with ACCU by going today to americaschristiancu.com slash Basecamp Live. 
All right, Megan, for the break, I asked the big question, are classical schools for everyone? And the answer is? It is yes. Okay. <laughs> Which I realize <laughs> is very anticlimactic. What? Uh, yes. Yeah. I could have said no, and we would have gone a whole different Well, that would have been way. a much more interesting answer, <laughs> but... Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, again, the answer is yes. I mean, obviously, and I get, I hear that question all the time. And sometimes it's because I think historically, certainly classical Christian schools have been, especially with limited resources and you can't accommodate to every child depending on certain special needs. We've done a lot of podcasts on this topic. And I think, yeah, I, I would agree. I think there's more breadth of what we can do to accommodate and to meet different demands. So the point is, yes, it's not just the super brightest kids uh, that can come to our schools. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. Well, and I, I think I wrote down just in my notes, just a small caveat of um, my answer is yes, ev- but every it's more like every classical school should be for every student mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, with the recognition of some of the realities that we face um, just with, like you mentioned, with private schools in particular, I would dream of a world where private schools are able to financially, um, accommodate and have students of every learning type in the sense of disability, general ed classroom, you know, all of those things that, um, public schools have a little bit more flexibility to do. Um, so I say should in the sense of recognizing that, um, there are some limitations there, but no, I am, um, I am very, very passionate about the fact that I believe that Classical education is for anyone who wants it, Um, for anybody who is on board with the mission. Um, I also recognize that there are people who enroll in classical schools who are maybe not fully on board with the mission and vision. And to that, I say, like, I I want you to be happy in school and for your children to be happy in school. And so if you are not on board with the mission the school will strike you as strange and the customs and our, and our, our way of going about things and the way that we prioritize things will strike you as strange, um, and may cause you to be unhappy. So that's why I say it is, it is for everyone who wants it. I also would add the caveat that, uh, there may be a degree of patience that is required of families, um, when they come to a classical school in the sense that they might have to, for the first quarter of their students' attendance, adjust their expectations of success or adjust their definition of immediate success. You know, not every student is going to transfer to a classical school and knock it out of the park academically. Um, we have some who do, and then we have some that it takes them a quarter to really get in and recognize like, Oh, I've never had to write notes by hand before. Um, I've never had to close read a text before and write down annotations, you know, like things like that, that they're just coming into a whole new environment. And I do think it is incumbent on schools to have ways of bringing those students in and helping them with that. Um, if they truly want to be for everyone and, and, and have that classical education accessible to different learning backgrounds, different learning abilities, different socioeconomic abilities and, and, and statuses there. Um, so I think that there's a lot of room for that. Um, but I, I do believe passionately that yes, everybody can be successful at a classical school. Well, and, and I think that is your, is your thinking or, you know, as you're articulating this idea of this transition in and whether that's you're coming in as a new family into this entirely new experience at kindergarten or whether you're transferred in, I, I, you know, the bottom line is ask questions. I, what I love about classical education is mm-hmm. there are actually answers. We don't just 
to your point about handwriting this, we don't do that just because we decided, I don't know, iPads are just, you know, we just, we're just going to be weird and not have those things. We actually could give you a very long <laughs> list of reasons, quite researched on why we don't want children taking notes on an iPad and what happens when you write, you know, or when you learn cursive. Or I mean, so these are not just weird things for weirdness sake or elitist sake. They're weird because they're different from the culture, but we could give you really good reasons why we are doing what we're doing, which leads me to this next question, which is how do you think educators, even parents can help build confidence and gratitude for this form of education, which I often say on the podcast, you know, are it's at middle high schoolers in particular that are kind of coming into their own understanding of, and owning their education. So, I mean, help them lean into it, not just continue to push against it and say, this is different from the, you know, the, the kids, in, you know, that go to the public school down the street from me. There's something different am I just weird or is this actually something I want to be confident and be grateful for? What would you recommend there? Yeah. Um, I can start, I'll start with the parents, um, which I'll, I'll give the caveat that my, my kids are still little. Um, so I, I don't say this with any sort of, um, high minded, uh, I know how to parent <laughs> type of type of attitude here. Um, I'm continually humbled by my own children. Cause your kids are how old right now? Uh, two and a half and almost five. No, that's, those are great. Those are great ages. And you're, yeah. And, and I under, there's a lot of folks listening. They're just on the beginning edge of that journey. And I can, I can tell you, there's a lot of us that have come to the other side of it that would say, uh, this is definitely the path to be on, but yeah. How do you answer that? What, what do you think on with yeah. confidence, gratitude? Well, for, for parents, um, I, I think even my four-year-old, um, knows what I find important and he knows, um, what I pay the most attention to and he knows what gets me applauding him and what gets me angry at him. Uh, he's very (laughs) in tune with the things that matter to me, um, both by hearing me talk about it and also just what I go out of my way to praise. Um, so I would say like, recognize that your kids are paying attention to everything that you say. Um, and examine your own heart on what you're praising. What do you find the most important? Do you find their work ethic and their compassion um, and their virtue, uh, their formation, the most important? Or do you find that A or B minus the most important? Um, and so talking the, thing, the things that you're talking about uh, and the way in which you talk about them, are you praising the work or are you praising the result? Are you praising the process and the patience and the amount that they had to put in to achieve something, or are you applauding the end result exclusively? Um, I also think, you know, there's that age old thing that you should pay attention to how um, your partner treats somebody who is, you know, working for them or is a server, you know, like somebody that is uh, in the process of, of doing labor for them. How do they treat that person? Um, same mm-hmm. thing with parents. Mm-hmm. How do you talk about your friends who are different than you? How do you talk about the family that has a vastly different worldview? Do you talk about them like they're less than you or do you talk about them with dignity? Um, which that word dignity, I think in classical education is enormous and kind of leads really well into what educators do at a classical school. Um, classical schools are uniquely positioned because of our emphasis on virtue and character to let students know that their intelligence is actually not the best or most important thing about them. (laughs) They um, are uniquely situated 
to tell them um, there's so much that's interesting about you other than your ability to score a particular way on a particular test. And a natural byproduct Mm. of leaving a classical school, whether you leave when you're in ninth grade or you leave when you graduate, (laughs) however long you are at a classical school, you should hopefully leave that situation believing and understanding that there are so many pathways to a dignified life and that your intelligence does not like does not mean that you are entitled to a certain level or lack thereof of dignity. The two are not related. (laughs) You can believe that you are intelligent all you want. And you might be right. You may be intelligent and you might be more intelligent than every other person in your class, but that does not make you more dignified. Um, And that I think classical educators are so uniquely situated to teach students that lesson. Uh, which is why I love it. Um, I think it's fabulous. Um, But parents, if they're doing that same thing at home, you've got a great recipe for success in that. Yeah, that's a great word, Megan. I think, you know, as we, as we close out our time and just thinking about the, just to your point, just the every, it's the everyday conversations that so often form the, the either elitism or humility in the lives of our children. I mean, you know, how do you respond to you know, if you're talking about the neighbors down the street in the school their children are in, or how do you respond to, to your point, someone who chose not to go to college and maybe go into the trades? Like, is that a lesser thing? I mean, it's all of these, again, it's, it's, it's complicated because we do want to be, um, you know, we want to celebrate things that are, that are truly excellent and we want to strive for things that are hard and maybe not always achievable, but at the same time we do it with incredible humility. So there's a lot to this is a huge conversation. Um, as we close our time, just mentioned you, you do this great blog, common sense classical, tell people how to find out more about you and what you're doing there. Yeah. Common sense classical was, um, born to be a, a resource for parents who are interested in just a really straightforward, um, uh, answers uh, to questions about classical education, either to support their student who already goes to a classical school and just learn more about some of the nitty gritty pieces of the classroom, uh, or people who have never heard of classical education before. Um, I like to joke that it was designed for the mom who has a baby on her hip while trying to make dinner for her family and wants 20 minutes to read something. Um, So it's really, it's situated... um, for, for those who are just interested in something that's really easily approached. Well, and you're, I mean, obviously you're speaking to a, to the base camp live world and we're all on that same journey and, you know, just trying to help, you know, make practical sense of a lot of things in the classical world that can be sometimes confusing and also just encourage us on this journey as we raise the next generation. So Megan, thanks so much for being here for the conversation today and uh, we will continue i'm sure with other topics in the future thanks so much for being a part of base yeah thanks for having me thanks again for joining us for another episode of base camp live and for staying to the very end we would love to hear from you this week take a moment send us an email info at basecamplive.com let us know where you're listening from and what is on your mind we are always thankful for those who sponsor this particular episode, America's Christian Credit Union, Gutenberg College, Classic Learning Test, and Wilson Hill Academy. We are so grateful for their partnership, and we will see you next week for another episode of Basecamp Live.